All right, we're back. Welcome to the Relay Bitcoin podcast episode. I think it's 55, 56, something like that. And we have, as usual, an amazing guest, but this is really a special one because he told me that he actually is not doing more than five or six uh, episode, uh, like podcast recordings a year. So I'm super, <laughs> super hyped that he is here. Eric Weiss, how are you? I am well, thanks for having me. Thank you, and you are even not working currently because you're traveling. Uh, I mean, I, as we've discussed before, uh, Bitcoiners are always working, you know, on uh, educating yes. and orange pilling uh, people. So kind of you are working, but you're also taking some time off, right? Uh, uh, what is your maybe um, work? How, how is your year looking? I mean, you're obviously a hardworking guy, um, but are you trying to take just occasionally a week or two here and there and travel the world? Or are you doing like sabbaticals where you just travel and try to plug out? Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. Um, one thing that's, uh, that's been, that struck uh, both Michael and I uh, over the last probably two years is that no matter where you go in the world, uh, everybody's interested to talk about Bitcoin. And it's very egalitarian in the sense that it can be, uh, you know, the person at the airport uh, checking you in who's interested in it to the very wealthy person, you know, that you meet at dinner. Um, everybody equally is interested in learning about Bitcoin or, uh, you know, if I'm with Michael, there's certainly people coming up to him all the time at every socioeconomic level. Um, so it's really interesting that um, Bitcoin uh, hits people at all ends of the spectrum financially, educationally, and also uh, all over the world. You know, you know whether it's you know Europe. Um, we met in Prague, or uh, you know I was in Switzerland, uh, your home country, uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, yeah, it's just it's everywhere, all over South America, Central America, wherever we go, people are interested in uh, either telling us their story about how they got into Bitcoin or have questions or, uh, you know, want to learn about it. So vacation and work seem to blend together. As a matter of fact, sometimes traveling and vacation can be even more productive than staying home because staying home, uh, you know, I've, I've hit everybody that I can hit with the education. And so uh, sometimes you have to travel to, to find more people. So traveling is right. good. But in your job, you're mainly connected also to the rich guys, right? I mean, I love your work that you're coming to um, conferences like in Prague, for example, and you mingle with all the plebs and, you know, you, you have these yeah. great um, uh, fireside um, chats on stage. But mainly you're also connected to the very wealthy guys because these are your customers, right? Correct. These are my customers. I, I think that um, educationally, um, it's important for everyone, and I, I think that Bitcoin's greatest value proposition is for the not particularly wealthy, for the, for the everyday worker, um, maybe not who's living paycheck to paycheck, but more the person that has a little bit of savings, whose savings are being stolen from them through inflation. Yes, it's bad in the United States, but it's bad and it's worse in every other country in the world. So these people can benefit the most from education. The rich people, they have other ways to uh, compete with inflation. Um, during inflation, lots of asset prices will uh, float with inflation. If mm. you're in real estate, those things will inflate and other things, even stocks, um, inflate to a degree. So it's the less rich people that um, 
that really need it the most, but also to some degree the the people that can have the most impact on Bitcoin proliferating and uh, becoming um, the vision that we all hope it can be are the affluent people. And uh, rich people uh, oftentimes are very smart and have great resources. And so uh, they're, they're always interested. They're, they're, they're already mentally set up to look for investment opportunities. Whereas, you know, a lot of people in the world are not looking for an investment opportunities per se. They're just trying to get day to day. But rich people are looking to stay rich or get richer. And so they're uh, accustomed to looking at investment opportunities. So they're the most curious. And uh, we're seeing, you know, Wall Street now in the United States um, embrace Bitcoin in a very big way, which I think is going to be a major catalyst. That's interesting because you have probably, uh, uh, and, and you're obviously very well connected with Michael Saylor and, and others that are so deep in this space, um, like in the Bitcoin space, but also in like the politics that are going on in the US, which obviously kind of has an effect on all the other jurisdictions, the whole world as well, like what they, what the SEC will decide, what uh, kind of uh, BlackRock will do, what presidential candidates will, will kind of make it. This will have uh, a, amazing um, effects on the whole world, on the whole Bitcoin industry as well. So can you give a bit of insights on kind of what is discussed currently? What is the timeline? When do you think like it's really going to be accepted and established mm -hmm. like Bitcoin as an asset, as a savings technology? When is it going to be really hit? When is it going to be um, as accepted so that all the other countries, like for example, the EU that are working on the Mika regulation now, they will all look mm -hmm. at the US, right? So do you think that there's yeah. a major or several major signals coming up? So the most important thing is that uh, the last two chairmen of the SEC, which is the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States, um, Gary Gensler, the current one, and his predecessor, have both said that Bitcoin is a commodity. And that's a particularly important distinction. So as a commodity, members of Congress um, and other politicians, presidents, can advocate for or stand up for Bitcoin. Um, whereas if Bitcoin were a security, think of like Apple stock, you couldn't have a member of Co United States Congress championing Apple stock, that would be playing favoritism towards a company or security. So the fact that Bitcoin has been deemed a commodity is massively important. Um, the other thing that that does is it puts the jurisdiction of Bitcoin in the in the CFTC's, um, you know, purview, not the SEC, because it's not a security, mm -hmm. which is helpful. So I think um, to that end, we have a number of members of Congress, um, both senators and Congress people, Republican and Democrat, which is amazing because politics is so polarized in the United States that usually if one party's for something, another party's against it. But we've got people on both sides of the political divide who are championing Bitcoin, which is pretty remarkable. We've got presidential candidates, prominent presidential candidates in the United States now. Uh, specifically, you've got um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's a massive uh, Democrat candidate um, who has said that, you know, Bitcoin is freedom money. And he's a massive proponent of Bitcoin. And then on the Republican side, you got people like Ron DeSantis, um, who've also championed Bitcoin. 
and are in favor of Bitcoin. So that's really unique. Um, so the combination of those two things is really big. I think that um, the, the, the next big, big event for Bitcoin in the United States would be an approval of an ETP or an ETF, uh, an exchange traded product that uh, BlackRock is going for, Fidelity is going for, and a number of other massive financial institutions. BlackRock and Fidelity are the two largest financial asset managers in the world. So that, that's a big deal. They each represent roughly $10 trillion of assets under management. And that's massive because in the past they've been telling that $10 trillion of people, don't touch this stuff. It's it's bad for you, you know, whatever negative things they've said. But, mm. you know, if they have an ETF and they have a product to sell these people that they can make money on, that tune is going to change and they're going to start suggesting that these people have some percentage of their money in Bitcoin, which is just massive because when you've got a fixed supply and not too many natural sellers, um, the, the price, the impact of that on price is going to be very, very dramatic when that gets approved. And for context, BlackRock ha is the largest issuer of ETFs in the world. They have filed over the years 576 applications for an ETF, and they have been approved 575 of those 576 times. Mm. So they tend not to fail too often. So a lot of people are optimistic that it's going to get approved. And if it does get approved, my guess is it would probably get approved in the first quarter of 2024. Okay, yeah, I think they have t the SEC has time until end of March or something. So probably Correct. they will also take this time. And then yeah, gonna... I think they're going to take as much time yeah. as they're given. Um, yeah. And then I also think that they probably won't approve like just one ETF. Mm -hmm. um, that they'll probably approve all the ones that they can approve if and when they do approve so that they're not seen as playing favorites in that regard. And then I think it's also highly probable that GBTC, um, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, will probably get converted into an ETF when that happens as well. Yeah, yeah. I think there are nine ETF um, filings now, as, as yeah. you said, big names. So if BlackRock will be uh, approved and also Fidelity, Fanec, Invesco, I mean, they, they, they will all yeah. get approved. And I agree with you that it's a bigger deal than many people think, mainly because these guys, BlackRock and Fidelity and all these guys have massive marketing budgets that they will uh, obviously invest into distributing this ETF in the whole world yeah. with the biggest financial, with the biggest investors, institutional investors uh, that there are in the world. And obviously they will be the successful biggest. with this. Yeah, I think people don't quite understand just how massive this is. Um, for example, you know, a, a, a sovereign microstrategy is kind of a quasi Bitcoin ETF, right? To mm. some degree. But if you had a massive institutional investor that wanted to put $2 billion into Bitcoin, they can't do it through microstrategy because the market cap is, you know, only $6 billion or so, right? It would move it too much. There's just not, mm -hmm. they can't handle a $10 billion investment. Mm -hmm. So, the other great thing about an ETF is an ETF, these firms, the Black Rocks of the world, they're just looking to make the fee, whatever it is, 50, 75 basis point fee. That's what they want. So when someone says, okay, I'd like to buy a billion dollars worth of this Bitcoin ETF, they literally go out 
and buy a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. They don't care what the price of the Bitcoin that they're buying is. They need to buy the billion dollars worth of Bitcoin so they can give these people a billion dollars of shares. And so it's driving, it's going to drive many, many, many billions of dollars of demand for Bitcoin when these ETFs launch. And I think that once we cross that threshold, I think Bitcoin, uh, the way I've been phrasing it recently, I say uh, the retail kind of window for Bitcoin investors will start to close and mm -hmm. the institutional uh, chapter of Bitcoin will begin. Everybody obviously will always be able to buy sats and hold Bitcoin, but the opportunity for those outsized returns is, is going to close. And I think um, there aren't too many times in life that you get to front run Wall Street. Um, you know, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, has already on you know public television, CNBC and other and Fox has gone out there and said, you know, Bitcoin is an international asset. It's good for diversification. It's good for protecting against um, you know inflation, and it's a digital gold. So he's already marketed Bitcoin. This is the CEO of BlackRock. So it's out there, whether they get approval or not. We kind of got the blessing of the CEO of the largest asset management firm in the world. So that's really significant, and yet the price has gone down, not up since then. So it's pretty remarkable to me that people don't see it and aren't viewing this as the true opportunity to buy the dip, if there's ever been one. I personally <laughs> yeah. have been buying as much as I can. <laughs> buy the fucking dip, guys. <laughs> yeah. No financial advice. Yeah. <laughs> not financial advice, uh, but I'm doing so it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone has to know for himself, but I agree with you. It's a, it's a huge opportunity. And so is this something that you and Michael, obviously Michael Saylor, um, we will talk about this in a bit, but you were super early in this whole space. I mean, you were very early. Michael was kind of early, right? But did you yeah, know? Yeah, it's only been like three years already? for him. Yeah. Three years for him. How, how long for you? I bought my first Bitcoin in December of 2013. Wow, uh, so you were super early, um, Michael, kind of early, thanks to you. Um, did, is, was this something that you already knew that will happen? Did you anticipate that like BlackRock no. will come out and put a Bitcoin no, ETF in the shell? No, absolutely not. Hey everyone, this is Anna from Relay. I want to tell you about Relay Private. It's our exclusive service for private clients, family offices and small and medium-sized companies looking to buy or sell large amounts of Bitcoin. As a Relay private client, you have a full team focusing on your needs. A dedicated account manager guides you every step of the way. You also get personalized 24-7 support and gain access to exclusive reports and industry insights created by Relay. If that sounds like something you or somebody you know should check out, click the link in the description or head over to relay.app slash private. No, as a matter of fact, I think that we're all still very early right now. I think that once an ETF gets approved, that might be the demarcation line between early and not early. Um, yeah. I really think that's probably the difference between being early or not is if you get in before there's a Bitcoin ETF, you are early. And the fact that people can buy today at the price they can um, and whatever their fiat currency is, is, is mind blowing to me that this opportunity still exists. Um, on a risk-adjusted basis, I think that Bitcoin right now at twenty-six thousand U.S. dollars or whatever it is, um, is the single best risk-adjusted opportunity it's ever been. When I bought it for, 
I don't know, roughly $800 in December of 2013, it was not nearly as good an investment as it is today. Um, it was a, a hope and a prayer with no traction and nothing. It was, a, it was an investment based on an idea and kind of a moral support, not really an investment. And that's why, you know, with the fluctuations in the price of Bitcoin at the time, I sold that Bitcoin um, too early, obviously, in hindsight. But in reality, it was it was just based on hope. Um, and now things are not based on hope. It's based on very real attraction and adoption and uh, the writings on the wall to a large degree. And so now I think it's the best investment opportunity it's been. That's a very counterintuitive but but interesting take, and it's true. Uh, you know, then it was really high risk, and now it's yeah. actually quite low risk. And it's crazy to me that for less than thirty k, you can still buy a whole coin. <laughs> it's 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 uh, honestly, it's a little bit frustrating to me. You know, it's like uh, Wall Street missed this. You know, the the institutional money of the world missed this, mm -hmm. and those of us. Uh, who are in early, the plebs, you know, who've been buying for a long time, I would have hoped that our benefit to doing so was greater um, and that Wall Street should be paying a higher price now, mm -hmm. right? But these bastards are going to get in at a ridiculously good price. And uh, rather than um, bitch about it, all I can do is buy more. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's what I'm doing. I'm just like, well, I'll just keep buying because there's going to come a time when uh, I can't afford to buy a Bitcoin mm -hmm. for sure. And so uh, I'd rather get them while I can afford them. Do you think these big guns, BlackRock and etc., are manipulating the price down? Are they? <laughs> I don't. I, I have a lot of uh, very intelligent, influential friends, not Michael, but uh, a, a number of people who do think that's the case. And I, I don't think I don't think they care one way or another what the price is. They're in the business of making fees. That's and they do very well making fees. They don't need to take risk. They don't need to get outsized reward. If they bring in uh, you know, uh fifty billion dollars, ten billion dollars to their ETF and they're making their fifty basis points to one percent a year, um and the price of Bitcoin goes up and, and they're making a bigger and bigger number, I think they'll be extremely happy. I don't think they're looking to manipulate the price. Because also they don't hold it themselves anyway. They don't really hold significant no. amounts of Bitcoin. So they're not, they don't have skin in the game, right? They're really into the business. They could. I mean, they're certainly allowed to speculate on their proprietary balance sheet, but uh, it's just not what they do. I, I think that, you know, they're, they have like the best business in the world, right? They get to make um, tons of money risk-free. So when you're of the mentality of making money risk-free on a fee basis, uh, taking that level of risk, uh, I think is less appealing. True. So before I ask you how you orange-pilled Michael Saylor, who orange-pilled yeah. you in 2013? And how, 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 yeah. how did this come about? I was, uh, I was in venture capital at the time and uh, I was investing specifically in uh, internet related companies. So my firm, we were pretty good at uh, understanding the value that the internet added to different businesses and also importantly um, 
businesses that the internet didn't add value to at that time everybody was putting dot com at the end of their name uh trying to you know pretend that bitcoin uh, that uh the internet was very helpful to them but uh i went to a conference in miami and uh, in 2013 a bitcoin conference and this was the first time that i saw the internet being used to transmit value safely and securely so the internet was really good for sharing information connecting people email that kind of thing but people were very reluctant to even do e-commerce online uh put their email and uh, put their uh credit card number into a website or put their credit card number or something into an email it was like uh very scary with good reason we've seen all the hacks and all the you know just how insecure uh unsecure that the internet was so Bitcoin was the first time that I saw value being able to transmit safely and securely from one party to another. And even more than that, you didn't need uh, a trusted party in the middle, no middleman. And uh, there was no trust required, right? Like you would know that the Bitcoin was real just by virtue of it hitting your wallet. So this was like really mind blowing to me. And that's, uh, that's what Orange Pilled me. Absolutely. So there was not it was yeah. not a specific <coughs> not person that kind of was already enthusiastic. It was just you got to know the concept at a conference and it kind of clicked with you. Correct. Yeah. Super nice. And did you already know Michael Saylor back then? Yeah, Michael and I have been friends for uh you know more than twenty five years. So oh, wow. okay. Yeah, we we'd known each other a long time and um we'd always uh, talked about business and technology and things of that nature. Um, and uh, I brought up Bitcoin a number of times in the past and he wasn't uh, interested in hearing about it and would kind of uh, dismiss that conversation. Um, you know, oftentimes even kind of uh, telling me that I should think about getting into this or not, that it was... Um, you know, still in a bit of a gray area, but you know, he had a, his company to run and thousands of employees and was competing every day, uh, against companies like Microsoft and Salesforce. And, uh, this wasn't his focus at all. <coughs> so I understand why, you know, it wasn't on his radar. And then during the pandemic, um, you know, we were spending a lot of time at, uh, we both live in Miami, uh, you know, during the winter a bit. And uh, so he was down there during the pandemic and we're spending a lot of time together um, trying to make sense of what was happening in the world. Um, the governments had shut everything down and locked everybody in their homes and uh, businesses had come to a halt and yet the stock market was going up and um, we were just trying to make sense of things. And um, he remembers that I said something along the lines of when there's you know big change like this, there's opportunity. Uh, we just have to find the opportunity. And then uh, I went back to talking about Bitcoin because I do that. And uh, instead of dismissing the conversation, he was receptive to it because like, we we're trying to make sense of what was happening in the world. And he just said, tell me more about that. And so we spent, you know, the next week or so uh, talking about it. I told him everything I knew. He obviously asked uh, very good probing questions and the more he asked the more I realized uh, I don't know enough so uh, 
you know, I, uh, I pointed him to some other resources after he'd pulled everything out of my brain and then, um, you know, helped him, you know, figure out how to, to buy it, etc. And then one day I was uh, pulling into a restaurant for dinner with some other friends and the phone rang and it was Michael. At the time, the price of Bitcoin was like almost exactly $10,000 US per Bitcoin. And so I picked up the phone and I was like, what's up? And he said, uh, I bought some Bitcoin. And I was like, okay, cool. And he said, yeah, 10,000. And I said, you bought one Bitcoin? And he said, no, I bought 10,000 Bitcoin. So his first trade was $100 million. And I went from thinking, great, I got my buddy into Bitcoin to, oh shit, I got my buddy into Bitcoin. And anybody who's been in Bitcoin for any amount of time knows that it's, you know, not just straight up into the right. There's there's some volatility in there, so uh, I had some anxiety about that. Still have a little anxiety about that, but uh, it's it's working out uh, very well for MicroStrategy and for Michael. So I'm happy about that. Oh my goodness! Yeah, he certainly likes extremes. <laughs> so I'm yes. not gonna buy a coin yes. or two. I'm gonna fucking buy 10k. Holy shit! Yeah, but and you know so, that's what that's what research and conviction will do for you, right? Because um, he does his own research mm -hmm. and he doesn't do things half-ass and he doesn't do anything until he has conviction. So he took the time mm -hmm. to learn everything that he could um, and didn't evaluate just Bitcoin, evaluated everything else, uh, gold, this, that, the other. And when he had his conviction, then, you know, when he does something, he does it in a significant way. Mm-hmm. And how long before? How long was that before then? MicroStrategy got in because I feel like this was probably quite a long, uh, hard fight, even for him. I mean, he's he's obviously uh, the founder and has a lot of influence, like major influence, obviously on uh, MicroStrategy. But still, a listed company. So until from the point he was kind of convicted and he was a private investor until he got the company. Yeah. Uh, in, in investing and there's also probably conflict of interest topics I don't know if he's such a yeah I'm not I'm quite a holder I'm, uh, I'm intentionally not privy to a lot of the details um, but uh, mm. suffice to say that uh, unbeknown to me at the time he was interested in getting his company into Bitcoin not just personally but I guess his company was taking longer and so he you know bought some personally I think and then um, over time uh, his board came to the conclusion that we can't just do something different like this without giving shareholders an opportunity to sell. So they did what's called a tender offer for the shares. They announced what they were going to do. Anybody that wasn't, any shareholders that weren't, um, didn't want to be a part of that, the company offered to buy their stock back at a price over the current stock price. And some small percentage of uh, people took advantage of that. And then once they had purchased the shares from people who didn't want to come along for the Bitcoin ride. Then they used the, the rest of their money to buy Bitcoin and then have subsequently raised money and bought more Bitcoin since. Mm -hmm. Has he as a person or your relationship kind of changed since then? Uh, did it get intensified even or like? Um, we talk a lot more about Bitcoin than we used to. <laughs> yeah, we... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I would say we talk about Bitcoin on a daily basis. So, um, in that in that sense, things um, 
you know, we, we always had common interests, but now, uh, you know, the primary interest in, in both of our lives is the same one. So we bond on that and talk about that a great deal. And uh, yeah, it's only made our friendship stronger. Uh, fortunately, um, it seems to be going in the right direction. So we don't need to consider so much what might happen if it didn't work out so well. But uh, yeah, it's, it's going okay. Yeah, he is now basically full-time into Bitcoin and you are full-time into Bitcoin, right? Do you sometimes Correct. wonder how it's going gonna, it's gonna to be, let's say in 10 years, if all of these things that we hypothesize on really work out as we think, like we as the Bitcoin community, things like yes. hyper-Bitcoinization, Bitcoin as the global reserve currency, Bitcoin ETFs, Bitcoin presidential candidates, or, or actually mm -hmm. presidents, all that kind of stuff. If that's gonna work out, do you sometimes envision, okay, where will the price be and where will we be, you and Michael, kind of as you'll Not be really, among the richest no. people in the world? Not really. No, uh, I think it's more that um, the world is, is going in peculiar directions right now. Um, there's hyperinflation in many countries in the world. Um, governments are um, taking away people's civil liberties. And I think that Michael and I both believe, I don't want to speak for him, but I think we both believe that you have to stand for something in life and you have to have a purpose. And um, I think we both believe that Bitcoin um, is just and good and moral and fair and maybe it doesn't solve all the world's problems but it certainly solves a lot of problems and helps a lot of people so i think we focus on education and a degree of success for that purpose and we want to we want to be on the side of of what's morally and ethically right so i think the focus is there um michael was very wealthy before getting into this he had uh, started with nothing, truly nothing, true American dream, and had, you know, become a billionaire. So he had achieved that American dream before this. So I don't think, uh, yeah, everybody likes financial gain, but I certainly don't think it was his primary motivating factor. Um, you know, he already had a, a lifestyle that most would envy. So, um, yeah. Uh, we don't spend a lot of time fantasizing or thinking about that piece of it. That's interesting because I do. <laughs> I, I wonder yeah. <laughs> how the world will look like when all these guys that were so early now, like maybe including also Chuck Dorsey to the group and, you know, a couple of them that you just know they were already billionaires and they yeah. put a lot of their cheddar into Bitcoin. In 10 years, these are going to be the Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk's uh, of the world. They will be the most uh, influential yeah, and but the, someone the has to people be. in the world. I, I you know, wonder how the world will be. You know, when I was in, when I was in uh, Columbia Business School, Warren Buffett came to speak to my class. And we had a student in my class from Italy who asked at the time what seemed like a pretty embarrassing question. He asked Warren Buffett, he said, you know, Forbes magazine says that you're the second richest man in the world. What's that like? 
And Buffett's answer, in hindsight, was very interesting. He said, well, um, I'm happiest when I'm sitting in my house in Omaha, Nebraska, that you could probably afford, uh, sitting in a chair that you could afford, drinking a Coca-Cola that you could afford. Um, you know, and then he said, you know, but when he left the talk that night, he had his own airplane that would take him home. And so that that was nice that it makes travel easier. But it's really not that different, I don't think. Um, so, you know, once once you have the comforts in life and security and, and you can generally buy, you know, you know, the modest things that you want, be it a, you know, I don't know, a house or a car or whatever. I don't think it makes a whole hell of a lot of difference. No matter how many homes you have, you can only be in one of them at a time, you know. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't... Uh, we don't, we don't think or talk about that much, to be honest. Interesting. Yeah, you're just uh, uh, doing the good work. You're just educating orange pilling, and because you think it's better, it's going to lead us to a better life, to better society. You got You got to stand for something uh, in life. You know. know? Yeah, you got to stand for something in life. You know, you have to have a purpose, and if you're lucky enough to find a purpose that um, doesn't have an aggrieved party that nobody has to lose or get hurt for your purpose that you think makes the world a better place to win, then that's a nice thing to be a part of. And that's one of the amazing things to me about Bitcoin is that nobody has to lose. You know, it's just everybody who touches it seems to, to win as long as they're uh, morally and ethically responsible. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a feel good thing to be a part of. And it's it's a it's a great community of people, as you know, you know, the people that you meet at conferences and, and the like. Everybody's really nice and positive. And, and that's even with the price action being flat to down, you know, like everywhere Michael and I go, the people that come up to him, nobody is. Uh, it's always positive. People are always coming up and thanking him mm -hmm. or just saying hello or, um, you know, it's always positive comments. It's just a community of like minded, nice people that uh, generally speaking, have pretty good you know, morals and values. Yeah, well said. That's also one big part of why I'm still in the game also since uh, 2015, yeah. really also trying to make, you know, uh, similar things that, that, that you guys are doing, also working, now working full time in the Bitcoin industry and trying to get as many people as possible educated about the topic. This is really, really cool. So my last question, as usual, Eric, also to you, you don't have to answer it, uh, but I ask everyone, okay, you are a big, big fan of Bitcoin. So what's kind of the pro proportion, the percentage of your total wealth that you have committed to Bitcoin? Um, yeah, let's, let me think about that. I would say it's, uh, you know, roughly 50% of my liquid net worth in that range. Mm -hmm. Same here, actually. <laughs> I still, yeah. I, I'm still, I still think it's too early to really go all in like 90% all in because then you will be forced at one point and probably when the price is low to sell because you have something other that you need to take care of, you know, so yeah, I, I just have, I have obligations in fiat and uh right. i have um i have other illiquid investments um that i had prior to bitcoin that uh you know i 
I couldn't get out of. I have a home. I have other things, you know. So um, plus some like long-term real estate stuff that um, commercial real estate kind of investments that I'm for better or worse, I'm, I'm locked in for a period of time. So um, yeah. I'm, I'm, Do you uh, think it fortunately, makes? Fortunately, I have a little dry powder to buy this dip, which I'm doing. I... But uh, yeah. <laughs> well done. Absolute last question, but this is also interesting for me. Like, yeah. how do you think it makes sense to hold a certain proportion of that also, like, in a non-custodial cold wallet, or are you kind of and in these regions that you guys are buying it? Also, Michael Saylor, yeah. I don't think he has tens of thousands of coins in in his hardware wallet. He probably has some, but like. Do you think it makes sense to have a certain portion there, or do you have everything kind of? I don't. In... I don't have any Bitcoin personally in cold storage. Um, mm -hmm. I have friends uh, who are in the cold storage device business, and they have explained to me in great detail uh, just how cold storage works, and I think I understand it pretty well. But um, for me, and for certainly for my uh, family office, high net worth individual clients. Uh, for many of them, it's not appealing. It, it it raises more issues than it solves for many. So, you know, okay, you've got your seed phrase. Uh, how and where do you store that seed phrase? Uh, what people in your life should know that seed phrase? If it's broken up among a bunch of safe deposit box and Swiss banks or something, or banks in various different countries, um, how do you manage that? What happens if something happens to one of those banks, etc.? Um, so it just opens up a lot of um, a lot of questions that a lot of my investors don't want to answer. And my Bitcoin is with Fidelity Digital Assets, which I think is uh, safest custodian in the United States. And uh, I'm comfortable with that. I think I'm not sure. Um, but I don't think a publicly traded company would be allowed to self-custody. They probably have to have a custodian too, I would think. Um, mm -hmm. So there are some, uh, there's still some opportunities in self-custody for folks to solve with a cool user interface or uh, other technological advances that might make that um, more palatable. But for example, my Bitcoin fund is the only fund in the US uh, that I know of or that I've ever heard of where when a investor redeems their Bitcoin or redeems from the fund, they have the opportunity, they can choose to go back into US dollars and we'll send them US dollars or uh, they can provide a you know wallet address that we'll verify and we'll send them Bitcoin when they're ready to self-custody. Because I think it, you know, that aspect is maybe the most important aspect of Bitcoin. Um, and you want to be in Bitcoin now, but maybe it's not right for everybody to self-custody just yet. Absolutely. Really true to the principles of, uh, of Bitcoin in the first place. Yeah. Thank you very much, well, we Eric. We support self-custody. We love self-custody. Yeah. No, but I, but I do yeah. want to say, like, I love the self-custody. I support self-custody. I think it's one of the true differentiators of Bitcoin and uh, fiat, that it's a bearer asset. It's not a promissory note. And being able to take possession of that is a tremendous comfort or just remembering your seed phrase in your head and walking across country lines or anywhere on the planet is uh is the ultimate um sovereignty so i'm i'm all about it <laughs> me too well said 
Thank you very much, Eric. It was very inspiring and amazing to, to talk to you. I know how scarce your uh, uh, time is, so really appreciate it. Thanks a lot and uh, enjoy the rest of your vacation. Hopefully you get to vacate a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> My pleasure, Julian. Thanks for having me and uh, keep up the good work. I love what you're doing and uh, the, the service you're providing is, is really valuable. So uh, really appreciate you. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Have a good one. You got it, bro. Cheers, Take Eric. Care.